right? I'll be reading from Psalm 82. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. I'll also be reading from 1 Samuel let's see, 16, 21 through 23. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. This is the word of the Lord. And we do that every year. We come together and we spend an hour just kind of reflecting on the year and trying to discern where God has been at work. So be prepared to do that if you're in town next week. That's a good tradition. I listened to a podcast this week called um, Millennial Writers Reflect on a Generation's Despair. The show notes said that the host was going to interview five writers to, quote, explore why millennials feel hopeless and how they can live with that feeling. And so the host went and interviewed different writers, producers, directors, and there was a common theme. One of the things that came up was a sense of feeling overwhelmed by the problems that the world is facing. And feeling that there really was no solution and no hope of a solution. The world that they longed for was one that was clean and safe and fair and kind, but the world that they were in just seemed to be getting worse and worse. And if we use biblical language for what they're longing for, we might say they're longing for justice. The word justice is found 422 times in the Old Testament, just in the noun form alone. It appears all the time. And here are a couple ways to understand it. Justice in the Bible is restoring shalom, restoring peace. Um, The Anchor Bible Dictionary, the restoration of a situation or environment which promotes shalom in a community. N.T. Wright, the theologian, the Justice is the intention of God expressed from Genesis to Revelation to set the whole world right, a plan gloriously fulfilled in Jesus Christ, supremely in his resurrection, following the victory over the powers of evil and death on the cross, and now to be implemented in the world. I don't think it's just millennial writers that are longing for justice. I think all of us, are. I bet you there's 
particular areas in your life that you care deeply about, uh, about the world, about the society, about the vulnerable, about the weak, and, and you wonder, why isn't this changing? This breaks my heart. And if you start to care at all, you can't help but it breaking your heart. And it might happen at a personal level, too. Some time ago, a friend told me about a tragic moment in his family life where one of his children was, was violently assaulted. And they, they knew who did it and reported it, but nothing ever came of it. And to this day, he just kind of has a sense of where is the justice in, in that? What do you do when, when, when things you really care about in life just don't seem to be happening in the world? Or, or maybe it seems like it's going backwards. Well, what we've been trying to do this Advent is take these deep longings, these most important human longings, this one, the longing for justice, and then take our belief in Advent that Christ has come into the world and ask, how does that reality address the deep longings that we have. Well, the sages of Israel had an had a interesting approach when the people of God were longing for justice. One, one of the things that they suggested that we do is sing. David wrote the Psalm Book of Israel His first job was a worship leader in the house of Saul. And many times David writes hymns, praise songs about injustice and God overcoming this justice. And Psalm 82, we're going to look at briefly tonight, is one of those psalms. It's not written by David, it's written by another another person. But but I thought, just just for a moment, let's just step back. Doug, for crying out loud... Rome is burning, and you're saying, go sing about it. Really? Well, I'm not saying just sing about it. But here's a couple things that happen when we come together and we name things like are named in this song. That's the first thing. Naming evil helps. Miroslav Volf is a theologian. He grew up in Croatia during the Balkan War, and he was a Baptist. He was a Croatian Baptist. And, of course, Serbia overran the country. There was horrible genocide occurred. And when he was writing his book on forgiveness, he realized, I have no capacity to forgive all the atrocities that the Serbs perpetrated on my people during the war. I don't know where to start. And the theme of his book was it had to begin by naming the evil, naming what had happened, naming how bad that it had been. And so when, when, we, when we write psalms or sing psalms or do what we're doing tonight and name injustice, name the things that are wrong, that is a step towards healing and wholeness. When we do that, liturgy... The prayers of God's people awaken hope. Um, All week long, we listen to liturgies of despair, liturgies of rage, liturgies of apocalypticism, of narcissism, consumerism. Uh, But we hear few liturgies of hope. And one of the things that we're doing tonight are singing and praying songs of hope. Why? Because hope stirs 
action. There's a reason why the civil rights movement was fueled by gospel songs of hope. How we sing determines how we live. What you listen to determines what you'll die for. And so these songs are not the end, but they are the beginning of caring about injustice. And this one, frankly, is a really weird psalm. Uh, It begins in, in a divine council. God is like in this courtroom and he's reigning over all these small g gods. Now, what's going on here? Well, well, there are other Old Testament passages that talk about uh, many different gods. Uh, Exodus 12 talks about his victory over the Egyptian gods. And sometimes that word is used, word is used for spiritual beings. And so here's what you you have here is this picture into heaven where the one God has called into the court all the fallen spiritual beings in the universe. Today we call them angels or or demons. And he's going to judge them and sentence them because they failed to do what they were created to do, which is protect the vulnerable. I know this is a really kind of hard idea to get our minds around. I was listening to a podcast the other day about Rachel Held Evans' new book. Now she was a great writer that passed away a number of years ago, but a friend has finished her book. And it's already a bestseller, and the interviewer had gone down to meet with her family, and her family lives in Dayton, Tennessee, and her father is a professor at Bryant College, which is a Christian college, And of all things, the interviewer, uh, who I could tell was being very earnest and respectful, but really considered Christians in the South is is like about the oddest thing you could possibly be. And and, and he said, what did you teach? And uh, Rachel Held Evans' father said, I teach angelology. And on the podcast, after the interview was over, you could tell that the, the poor person that was doing the interview was just astounded that anybody in America with a PhD would believe in anything like angels and demons. But we do. It's part of our story. And it's how we think about justice. And we can't really think about longing for justice without just talking a little bit about this this strange truth. Um, so let's just take a little detour for a moment to flesh this out a bit. I, I, I think this is important because if you don't understand this and you long for justice and you work for justice, you're going to get killed. Uh, here's a couple of the verses where Paul picks up this theme from the Old Testament. Romans 8, 38 to 39. Uh, he says, we don't struggle against death or life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. None of that will separate us from the love of God. Could these words principalities and powers? Um, the Greek word is archaea, means principalities, positions of human power. Exousia is powers. It refers to the authority to exercise an office. And the way he's using them is as these spiritual beings that somehow work in and through people and institutions. 
Now, Doug, where do you get that? Are you just making that up to preach it? Hold on. Um, He mentions it again, Ephesians 6, 12. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, the world forces of the darkness. Colossians 1, 16. In him, all things were created, dominions, principalities, and powers. Now, Paul never says, and by the way, when I'm using these words, this is what I mean. Um, I wish that he did. But here is why most theologians today think that what he means is that there are spiritual powers that are at work in and through human institutions and leaders. A couple of quick, quick reading, reasons why. Um, first of all, he, he seems to be building upon Old Testament scriptures that describe groups of lesser gods who rival in vain the power of Israel's God. Secondly, those two words are used in extra-biblical literature to refer to spiritual beings. Third, these terms were also used in the magic and astrological texts of the day, so they would have been familiar to non-Jews as well. Four, these same terms were used to describe human leaders in governmental positions of authority. And then we have an example in Daniel 10 of a spiritual power working behind the scenes in Persia to resist the spread of God's kingdom. So, uh, in the 20th century, when it dawned, nobody believed in this stuff. Everybody thought this was mythological. Even many kind of Bible-believing Christians just kind of played it down, said, look, they, they didn't know better. We, we've got physics now. And then something happened. It's called the Holocaust. And all around the world, people went, man, there's more going on here than just bad, bad people. There is an evil power that is just washed over the earth. And so a number of theologians in the 20th century, like Henrik Burkhoff, Jacques Hillel, William Stringfellow, Walter Wink, started to develop this theology of the powers. And they started to play with this idea that behind every human institution, there are spiritual beings that work in and through the institution that originally were created by God to care for the vulnerable, but have been corrupted by the fall. Walter Wink is one. He says, the spirituality that we encounter in institutions is not always benign. It's just as likely to be pathological. And then William Stringfellow, he wrote a lot about race in the 60s and the powers. He said, the monstrous American heresy is in thinking that the whole drama of history takes place between God and humanity. But in truth, biblically and theologically and empirically, it's otherwise. The drama of this history takes place among God and humanity and the principalities and powers, the great institutions and ideologies active in the world. Well, I go into that to to kind of develop a spirituality of justice. That there's more that's going on whenever we even think about making the world more just than just activism. That there's actually spiritual beings that are involved in the institution and the powers. They were created by God uh, to help people flourish. They're fallen, and now they oppose the flourishing of human beings. And that's why it's so doggone hard. Do you really think our world would look the way it is if there weren't more going on here than meets the eye? Well, this is what the psalm is about. God addresses these fallen powers. He criticizes them and then he commands them to do justice. He says, give justice to the weak, the fatherless, 
Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Then in verse 5, he explains why it's so needed. They have neither knowledge or understanding. They walk in the dark. He judges them. And then he turns towards hope. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. Now, how will that happen? How will God judge the powers? How does God heal the evil in the world? What does God do with all of the injustice? His plan is Israel. Israel climaxes in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ bears upon himself all the evil, all the injustice at the cross. And in taking it all upon himself, destroys it. Two verses in the New Testament, Colossians 2, 13 to 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with him. He's forgiven all our trespasses. He canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set it aside. He nailed it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, those same words again, and put them to shame. He triumphed over them in him. And then he defeats the powers fully at his return. 1 Corinthians 15, 24. Then comes the end when he delivers a kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. So this is how our Advent hope speaks to our hope of justice. The hope of Advent is that Jesus has entered his broken world, entered its evil, entered its injustice, that all the powers of evil are spent on him, and that evil is triumphed over at the cross. He begins to establish the kingdom of God on earth then and will one day to return it fully. And that's why so many of our great Christmas carols talk about justice. Have you noticed that? Oh, holy night. Truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love. His gospel is peace. Change shall he break for the slave is our brother. And in his name, all oppression shall cease. It came upon the midnight clear was written to call attention to the issues of slavery and strife in the United States. And so it has these words that cry for peace on earth that will overcome woes of sin and strife and 2,000 years of wrong. And it ends, oh, hush the noise, ye men of strife, and hear the angels sing, all ye beneath life's crushing load whose forms are bending low. Have hope. Well, what does all this theology mean? I know it's hard to get our minds around it. I know it's hard. But I just, I just felt like we couldn't ignore this tonight. Just a couple things and we'll end. It means that the world will not naturally just get better. That view of, sometimes is called progressivism, that our technology and our science will one day, it's just going to, eventually it'll just get better. The Bible doesn't teach that. Too many fallen dark powers in the world. It's not going to just get better. Secondly, it means that the world isn't doomed. God has pledged to rescue it. Third, it means we're limited in what we can do. Boy, that's important to remember. 
There are spiritual powers, fallen spiritual powers at work in every institution. There's only so much that you can change. And finally, it means that there's hope. God has entered into evil through Christ and at the cross bent the world towards shalom. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, thank you for coming to the world to live a sinless life, to die on the cross, to rise again on the third day, to ascend to heaven, to arise to the right hand of the Father, and to disarm the powers. Lord, it's so hard to believe that that's happened. It doesn't look like it's happened. Lord, this is where we accept what the Bible says is true. We, we choose to believe that the moral arc of the universe is indeed bending towards justice. And so we do not despair. We don't give in to liturgies of rage and narcissism and consumerism. We sing liturgies of hope. And we go into the world as hopeful people. Restore our hope as we come to the table tonight, Lord. Amen. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks.